And he goes to his parents, showing how it's a great investment. And if they'll only give him, you know, $350,000, it'll be a great investment, blah, blah, blah. The apartment is about $1.2 million. And the kicker, of course, is that the apartment is 500 square feet. And welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It is Thursday, September 29th, and I'm Kate Smith, an editor for Bloomberg News here in New York. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dan Moss, executive editor for Economics. Hi, Kate. Today we're going to be talking about home price inequality. Now, it's no surprise that in some metro areas of the United States, like New York and San Francisco, home prices are incredibly expensive. What you might not know is that the growth of house values in those areas has significantly, and we mean significantly, outpaced other parts of the country. It's true. Over the past 30 years, apparently, prices in the 20 most expensive markets have risen much faster and much, much faster, like Dan was saying, in prices in the 20 least expensive markets, according to a Trulia report that was written by Ralph McLaughlin. For those of you who don't know, Trulia is an online aggregator of real estate listings across the U.S. Now, Dan, what I found really, really interesting about this report is that it confirmed this theory that I've had about New York specifically Manhattan for a while. New York is so unique to me in that it's a city of successful, wealthy people. But not just that, those people had to have been raised by successful, wealthy people. And that, I think, makes it really unique and completely cut off to people who, I mean, let's face it, just didn't grow up with financial stability. You know, it's another take on this term inequality, which seems to be everywhere at the moment. But before we get to New York and Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about your apartment as well. (laughs) Before we get to New York and whether you can still make it here, let's focus first on the country as a whole. To talk about housing inequality, we have Robert Schiller on the line joining us from New Haven, Connecticut. Robert's really the gold standard when it comes to home prices. He's the name behind the case Schiller Index, the authority on housing prices in America. He's a Nobel laureate, the second we've had on the show, and currently Sterling Economic Professor at Yale University. (sighs) He probably (laughs) even owns a house. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Bob, so I want to get your thoughts on this Trulia report. Do you buy the idea that the most expensive areas in the U.S. are growing much, much faster than the least expensive? That, That seems to have an element of truth to it. You have to specify the time interval. And I'm thinking, uh, for example, San Francisco is among the most expensive cities, uh, and it has been growing lately. But it's slowed down a little bit in our latest numbers. It's a complicated picture. Of course, historically, the most expensive places must have grown faster than others at some point in history. But uh, it's a complicated story. You know, if expensive places don't necessarily grow fast. I think maybe it is happening now, uh, but I'd have to carefully study how accurate that statement is, and and with a one-year time interval. So the Truly Report was actually looking at a 30-year time horizon, and they were looking at areas specifically like San Jose and San Francisco, you know, the Bay Area, of course, and then New York and a couple others, and that it was that those had grown at such an exponentially large larger pace, faster pace, I should say. Oh, you're talking Silicon Valley. Yes. I can certainly believe that because there was a uh, technological revolution in the last 30 years, and they're the center for that. 
So I certainly believe that. And how about the New York question? Well, New York is an expensive city, but lately it hasn't been growing. Now, over 30 years, uh, I think it has grown substantially, but not as much as people might think. New York has emerged as the uh, financial center that it is uh, since uh, the early 19th century. So it's held 200 years. So, you know, you figure out what's the excess return on New York real estate over two centuries. It's going to be something like 1% a year. Nothing to get that excited about. So people often make that mistake in judging differences between cities. Well, talk about the long view. How do you account for this difference between perception and what your data is indicating? Well, I think uh, people are fascinated by the housing market, and they uh, love to tell stories. But that doesn't mean they ever look at data and do calculations. The cities that, that have achieved high levels are not surprisingly glamour cities, uh, cities that uh, celebrities live in. And the stories about those cities fuel people's imagination. It's not surprising. We're human. Uh, most of us aren't financial analysts. So in terms of real estate, are these cities even part of the United States national economy? Are they really part of an economy that is comprised of, say, Singapore, Dubai, and neighborhoods in London? Well, uh, the problem with real estate is it's a very diverse thing. There's always a story, practically, for all of these. When you say London, London has more stories written about it than just about any other, any other city. Uh, and it has been a world financial center of great distinction. So it seems plausible to investors from wherever, China, India, Russia, wherever they're coming from, that's a place to put money. And it's also, London has a reputation for political stability and uh, lack of usurpations. So all those things come together to a story for London. I, I'm not surprised that there's a vulnerability to bubbles in London real estate. Let me jump in here and, and bring it back to the U.S. for just a second and kind of try to tie this together with income growth. I mean, in in your own research and the way you've seen kind of the way prices have evolved over the past 30 years, is there a strong correlation between income growth in a particular area and the home prices, or do they tend to be decoupled? We find a correlation in forecasting, we found especially useful employment growth. That means more people coming into the city. And you can find a fairly good correlation between home price increases across cities and employment growth. So here's what happens. Some industry starts expanding in a city. They start hiring. They bring people in. There aren't enough houses for all these people. So they start bidding against the residents. And, you know, some of the residents will end up, out, uh, if they're lower income, they can't win the bid. So they end up moving in with their parents or something like that. But that stimulates the construction industry. And the construction industry then increases the supply. And eventually, the prices tend to come back down or at least slow their appreciation. So that's a typical cycle of cities. Their, their growth is irregular through time. And you see bursts of home price increases that will later very likely be reversed. Now, Bob, that line about people moving in with their parents is a good one. There's been a lot said and written uh, about that lately. 
Kate is a millennial herself and has an interesting personal story. And Bob, I'd like you to comment on whether you think that is part of what's going on right now. Before I get into my personal story, I'd like to get some numbers because it's not just me, right? One in three adult children in the U.S., they receive monetary support of some kind in their parents. And that's not that's on the other end of the spectrum of, you know, the millennial sleeping on their parents' couch. It's the millennial receiving, you know, a rent subsidy from mom and dad so that they can live in Manhattan and pursue their dream of whatever. So one thing that I find interesting living in New York is that there are very, very few people I know that have not received some kind of parental subsidy along the way to get here. Me personally, I was only able to move into my first apartment because my parents were willing to co-sign my lease. And to give our listeners a little peek into what the glamorous life is like in New York, this was a maybe 350 square foot studio, if I'm being generous, in Hell's Kitchen for $16.15 a month. And what that required was excellent credit. I'm talking like $7.50. My income had to be 40 times the monthly rent and the guarantor had to be 80. So the only way I could have moved into that apartment was with my parents co-signing that lease. And I thought that that was fascinating. When I spoke to my friends, I was actually receiving some of the least amount of support. Some of them were getting, you know, I mean, I have one friend whose mom pays for half her rent. (laughs) Like, So, Robert, can you tell me about how is the parental subsidy issue impacting rents in places like Manhattan. It's interesting you mentioned that my own son is not getting a... He's, he has an apartment in, in the <laughs> New York, uh, near Manhattan. Um, maybe he didn't go to Manhattan. It, maybe it's cheaper a little bit further out. But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's natural that this would happen because people have an instinct to promote their own children. And uh, I, I think it's probably since time immemorial, right? They were doing that in Ancient Rome, too, I'll bet. Now, just to bring it back to this issue of inequality, and Bob, you know this better than anyone. It's a term that has a lot of buzz right now. Piketty didn't specifically discuss millennials and Manhattan real estate in his book, but to the general idea of inequality, is this a manifestation of inequality, wealthy parents beget kids getting a foothold in a major city, which begets the opportunity to work for fantastic companies like Bloomberg. Is this fueling this inequality zeitgeist? Well, I think that it's it's stronger than it was in the past. That it's the millennial generation. That uh, I'm not an expert on this, but my impression is they weren't asked to do any household chores when they were children, I did, as they I did used chores, to be. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> you did. But most parents today are are preoccupied on getting their kids an advantage. So you don't want them to do, most people don't want them to do household chores because that takes away from their studying. And they've got to get into a good high school or a good college and a good job after that. And parents, uh, I, I think that's... The zeitgeist right now, uh, and so re- renting them an apartment in New York sounds perfectly believable for for now. And I I bet it's much stronger than it was fifty or a hundred years ago. Is that a good thing for economic mobility in the country? Well, I think uh, what's the alternative? Karl Marx, okay, 
in, with Engels in 1848 wrote the communists. They didn't win a Nobel. <laughs> they didn't win a Nobel. But they wanted to abolish the family. Uh, didn't happen. I think this uh, shows that they were stronger on rhetoric than, rhetoric than they were on ob observing reality. Uh, there's a parental instinct to want your children to do well. And once we get past uh, marginal living, what do parents want to do with their income is to help promote their children. But of course, the, the idea of parental support is, is certainly nothing new, obviously. But I think what I find interesting is, and it's universal, but it's not universal that parents can afford that, right? So like only a certain kind of parent and a certain kind of person can is able to afford to spend that kind of money on their kids. So I think, I think that's what we're talking about a little bit about the economic mobility question, because it's not universal that everyone can move to New York and have half their rent paid for by mom and dad, right? Right. And it's getting, as you know, uh, Thomas Piketty uh, showed that it's getting worse. I think it, 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 it's getting to the point where if you are in what he calls the top 1%, there's almost no way to spend the money on yourself. That's why you've ended up lavishing it on your children. And, and we would hope they would do more on philanthropy, but uh, somehow the children get favored. What you described would certainly be true in some parts of the United States, but in others, and I'm thinking about New York City, to live the life that you've described, you'd need a bit more than that, wouldn't you? I haven't done the calculations. You think going out to eat and going to shows, I mean, let's figure it <laughs> We could try to figure it out. But in all seriousness, though, I mean, there's been a lot said and written about income disparity in various parts of the country. New York Times had a big piece on this uh, last Sunday and the extent to which this might be entrenched. So the phenomenon that we're talking about in, say, New York City or San Francisco, as measured over the past 30 years, again, just to press you on this, it is fueling this sense of inequality and political and economic discomfort I think that's the the trouble of our times, and uh, it's reflected in the uh, election campaign, uh, recent election campaign. I think uh, if you read Thomas Piketty, I'm trying to pronounce it right. He's French. Okay. Uh, the uh, a lot of what's in his book is uh, a discussion of the literature at the t at different times in history, notably the so-called Gilded Age around 1900, when inequality was uh, especially bad. And he argued that it affects their, their whole sense of life and living and even romance. You know, a lot of novels of that time would talk about marrying into wealth uh, because that was perceived as the only way you could arrive, inequality being so high. Now... Kate, you have some more stories, um, some of which might surprise our listeners, but they may not surprise Bob. It's beyond parents um, being sort of hassled by their children to contribute to a down payment, and it's beyond rental subsidies, and it's beyond your own experience of lease guarantors. You know people who are doing spreadsheet presentations for their parents about liquidity and rates of return if only they can help them with the down payment. Exactly. And I think that's, I mean... It almost seems like a parody. 
It is. I mean, it does. Are, are you are you saying that they're optimistic about housing as an investment? Yes, absolutely. I was talking to a friend last night, and I should mention that he he owns a an apartment on the on Midtown East. He doesn't actually live in it though. And he was talking about how he views New York real estate, and he is not American. He views New York real estate as the ultimate investment that he could possibly make with his money because it is to him always growing you're never going to you're hardly ever going to experience a loss in new york city real estate and then it's liquid more liquid i should say than let's say a hedge fund or private equity so if he wants to park a million dollars what better way to do it than manhattan real estate to him so it's not like dad can i borrow the car he sits his parents down and does a spreadsheet presentation based on rates of return as a way of persuading his parents to cough up a down payment. Bob, you're going to love this. So the guy who bought that apartment, he he was able to afford it on his own. But I know another person who, I mean, I guess he didn't really afford it. But anyway, so he wants to buy an apartment in the West Village. And for our listeners who aren't in New York, uh, West Village is, I think, one of the most expensive neighborhoods in, in Manhattan. It's beautiful. It's, you know, tree-lined. When you think of New York, this is the neighborhood you're thinking of probably. So anyway, so he wants to buy an apartment in in that neighborhood and he goes to his parents and he comes up with a PowerPoint presentation showing how it's a great investment. And if they'll only give him, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, it'll be, you know, they'll make their money back. It'll be a great investment, blah, blah, blah. The apartment is about one point two million dollars. And they agree, and it's just this investment that they view. And the kicker, of course, is that the apartment is 500 square feet. And I think that was kind of like what Dan and I are talking about, is there just, I mean, how many families have the the liquidity and the cash that they can just look at a presentation and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense for me to give $350,000 to my kid. I just have to imagine that that's not a universal phenomenon. It can't be. No, it's not. You're talking about the one percenters. But that's who New York is now. But this feels like it's the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. It does. And I think making it more universal, that's to me what it New York has become, because that's the only way you can buy a home in New York. By the way, uh, our numbers for New York uh, metro area show a uh, 1.7% increase in home prices over the last year. Now, is that New York, Brooklyn, all the boroughs, or is that just Manhattan? Well, in fact, that is de-emphasizing Manhattan. Really? Uh, because we're talking about, I, I, I don't think we represent uh, co-ops well. Maybe it's not the only number that you could look at. I think New York, you know, it tends to goes through periods of strength and weakness. And, uh, New York was weakened by the financial, it being a financial center. Of course, London is still going up. I, I can't really explain all these things, but I'm wondering what the spreadsheet that this person showed and what the time horizon was. But I have a, a, a spreadsheet showing U.S. home prices, not Manhattan, U.S. home prices back to 1890. And it shows that between 1890 and 1990, uh, home prices in the U.S. did little better than increase with inflation. But there's often been an idea that it's done well. Uh, it seems to be uh, apocryphal. But it does, of course. I mean, of course, New York has become an expensive city. And that happened over a long time. And 
it gave people, you know, one or two percent a year return on capital gains. I find it a little strange that people are so excited about it <laughs> at, at various times, but that's human nature, I suppose. So, Bob, again, taking the long view, and you're very good at this, looking at these cycles over the past 100, 150 years, seeing what you see now, discussing what we're discussing now, in the big picture, how does this end for our economy? Well, I hope there isn't an end for our economy. Uh, the, the, the bubble and burst that we saw that peaked in 2006 was a huge historical anomaly. Uh, we'd never seen anything that dramatic. There was the, uh, the uh, bubble in Florida in the mid-1920s, but that was more isolated. So I don't know what to make of, uh, of these. Uh, why w w Are we likely to have that happen again? Uh, I don't... Uh, Maybe, but right now it's not really happening. It's not that dramatic on a broad scale, maybe in certain places. Well, Robert, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. We've enjoyed it immensely. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there... Take a minute to rate and review the show so that more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at DanielMossDC and at ByKateSmith. And you can follow our guest as well. Robert can be found on Twitter at, at Robert J. Schiller. We'll have to get your spreadsheet friend in here. <laughs> I don't think he's going to want to come in here after the show. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>